Good morning. This week's character is a little easier to pronounce than Zerubbabel. We're studying Esther. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right before Job. A little background while you're turning there. Israel and Judah had been taken captive in judgment for their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to Jehovah. Uh, Charlie gave a timeline last week. It'd be good to review very briefly. King Darius had commanded and funded the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 538 B.C. The first group left for uh, for Jerusalem uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Am I pronouncing that right? Zerubbabel. I, I hope I get Ahasuerus better. Fifty-five years after the first group returned to Jerusalem, we are introduced to Esther. Esther, the book of Esther, lasts for ten years. The chronology, the, the, the events last ten years. Not, not this time in Jerusalem, but in Shushan. It's, uh, it's the citadel, it's the capital of the Persian Empire, uh, and not Babylon either. Don't confuse Shushan with Babylon. Shushan is actually about 200 miles east of Babylon in the modern-day country of Iran, where Babylon was in uh, modern-day Iraq. Sixteen years after our study of Esther... Ezra would lead a second group to Jerusalem and hopefully hear about Ezra next week. And 13 years after that, there was a third return under Nehemiah. So we see groups leaving uh, the area for Jerusalem, but this week we are in Shushan. Esther is an amazing book. It's full of intrigue packed with action. C.H. McIntosh wrote, neither Israel's best friend nor their worst enemy is once named in the book of Esther, yet the whole book is full of the actings of both. We asked the question, I, I wondered, why is Jehovah not named? Why is the Lord not named in the book of Esther? McIntosh speculates that it's because of Israel's condition, because they were under Gentile rule. It was a shame for Israel to be so. God could not publicly own them, and therefore his name is not found in this book. But the heart of Jehovah could never forget his people, and the heart of a faithful Israelite could never forget Jehovah or his holy law. The theme of our study this morning is simply God uses ordinary people in seemingly impossible circumstances to work His gracious and sovereign will. God uses ordinary people in seemingly uh, impossible situations to work His will. We find the setting of the book in Esther 1. And verse 1, we read about an expansive kingdom. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Take a big, broad paintbrush on a world map and just 
start in India and sweep across to uh, through Egypt down to Ethiopia, and you would have um, encompassed the reign of Ahasuerus. Amazing to have a king reigning over such a wide area without the benefit of, of a single telephone. <laughs> the, um, the rule, uh, the fastest way to go at that time was by horse. Imagine a kingdom that large. Uh, the expansive kingdom uh, in our setting is the backdrop of, um, in verse 4, an ostentatious show of wealth. Verse 4, uh, he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty. Ahasuerus was not afraid to, um, to show all the, uh, the splendor of his kingdom, to show it off to, uh, to his friends. We hear of an extravagant feast in verse 4 for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And after that extravagant feast, we read of the opulence of the palace in verse 6. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Wow. So we have uh, uh, at the center of this huge kingdom, we have this, uh, this rich capital uh, of uh, Shushan with Ahasuerus reigning. Finally, uh, in our setting, we find an unreasonable demand. In verse, um, verse 10, on the seventh day, that's the end of their feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. And uh, I've been critical of Vashti in my own study because uh, she disobeyed the king. But uh, Unger in his Bible dictionary, says that Vashti's appearance would have been contrary to Persian etiquette as well as to female propriety. At the end of 187 days of party, perhaps the king was grasping for something uh, with which to impress the people and his officials. Vashti appears to have taken a higher moral ground in her refusal. She would not reveal in public that which was rightfully reserved for her husband. And she should be commended for her modesty and courage. Modesty is a woman's precious possession. Vashti paid a high price for hers. We brothers appreciate the modesty of the sisters in this meeting. The world has a definite mold and it is attempting to squeeze you sisters into that mold and too infrequently 
we brothers have opportunity to thank you for your modesty, and we take that opportunity this morning. Ahasuerus had to pay for his foolish demand. He, uh, his advisor said, uh, look, there's a problem. Uh, all the women are going to refuse their, their husbands now that, uh, now that the queen of this empire has refused her husband. So um, Ahasuerus was forced to write this decree, send it to the 127 provinces in his kingdom to reestablish, reinforce the uh, husband's headship in the home. What do we do then for a queen? Uh, the king decreed, Vashti will no longer come before me. She will no longer be queen. So what are we going to do? King's advisors step in. Uh, oh, king, let's have a beauty contest. And uh, the most beautiful woman in your kingdom will be your queen. And uh, to which the king must have replied, uh, right on. Sounds like a good idea. What a superficial qualification for a queen, for a wife in general. But uh, it seemed like a good idea to Ahasuerus. And at this point, we're introduced to uh, Mordecai and Esther. In chapter 2, verse 5, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured by, uh, captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Many young women were gathered to Shushan, the, uh, the citadel, and among them was beautiful Esther. God overruled Ahasuerus' choice of a queen by making Esther beautiful. He, uh, Ahasuerus chose Esther for her outward beauty, but it was the inward character, the beauty of her character that God prized. And that was his qualification for having her in the palace as queen. We read in Proverbs that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. That was true of Esther. She feared the Lord. Ahasuerus loved Esther. In uh, chapter 2, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther did not reveal her family uh, tie to um, to anyone at this time. Mordecai had instructed her not to, and uh, she is now queen of um, of this kingdom. As a uh, sort of a footnote, we have in uh, verses 21 through 23 that there was a conspiracy within the uh, innermost court of of the king. Two chamberlains. Two doorkeepers had, uh, were angry with King Ahasuerus and, and were going to assassinate him. 
Mordecai found out about it, uh, he told Esther, um, there's, there's not a connection between Mordecai and Esther in, in the, uh, in Ahasuerus' mind. So I think secretly Mordecai said, Esther, uh, they're gonna kill the king. Uh, let, uh, let the king know that, um, uh, that this is gonna happen. So, um, just as a little footnote, the, uh, the plot was foiled, the, uh, the chamberlains were caught, and they were hanged for their, uh, their conspiracy. Who was it who alerted Mordecai to the conspiracy? It was the Lord, yes, absolutely. The Lord brought that, brought that out. An entry was made in the Chronicles of Ahasuerus. Meet another important character in our study this morning, Haman the Agagite, in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. There's some question about it, but uh, commentators seem to agree that this uh, Agag, of whom Haman was a uh, uh, descendant, was none other than Agag of um, King Saul's day, the Amalekite. We know about uh, Amalekites from, uh, from the book of Samuel. Mordecai disdained Haman because the Amalekites were the enemies of God. Turn very briefly back to Exodus and let's read about the Amalekites. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 and um, verses 13 through 16. Just to summarize, um, Joshua defeated Amalek and the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book that uh, I will blot out the name of Amalek from, from the earth, from generation to generation. And uh, it seems severe, but uh, if we investigate this further, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25, we see a very significant reason for the Lord's judgment against Amalek. Deuteronomy 25. And verse uh, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear flanks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Amalek was a coward. He, uh, he attacked the people of God, the stragglers, the children, the elderly, the weak, the sick. And uh, he was uh, harassing them as they, as they made their way out of Egypt into the promised land. And the commentary that God offers on this is that they did not fear the Lord. And the Lord uh, judged them for it from generation to generation. This is the background uh, for, I believe, for 
the um, the insubordination, if you will, of Mordecai to Haman. Perhaps an Israelite would excuse himself from obeying this commandment of the Lord because Israel was uh, was scattered across this Persian Empire, just um, just dispersed. But for Mordecai, he would not forget. He would not forget the command. And he would not bow down to Haman. As um, midshipmen in the Navy, we were taught, uh, John Love, uh, Kathy, understand, uh, as young people in the military, you're taught to salute, just salute. Uh, that's one of the first things you learn as, uh, as an inductee, salute. And, uh, and yet, in a neutral port like uh, Singapore or Hong Kong, you have different navies mingling in, in those uh, communist or as welcome as, uh, as uh, free nations. And so um, we're, we're taught to salute officers, uh, be they French, be they British, uh, whoever they are, salute them. But if you see a Soviet officer in your uh, in your trip through uh, through these uh, ports, you don't salute them because they are enemies of the United States of America. It seems strange. It seems strange to me to uh, uh, to see a, a grizzled old officer who'd been a, a nuclear boat commander, uh, plane captain, or uh, captain of a ship. Uh, you don't salute him. He is an enemy of the United States. The story was told years ago of um, visitors who were visiting Rome and they stumbled into St. Peter's Square. I, I think that's where it was. Um, just in time for uh, a proclamation from the Pope. And there was a big crowd of people in the square. And when the Pope appeared, uh, the, the people flattened themselves. They, they went down, bowed on their faces to the ground. And uh, these, uh, these visitors, this couple, was, um, they were believers, and they, they would not bow to the Pope. And as they looked across the backs of these, this crowd, not too far away, uh, there was another couple standing. <laughs> and uh, after everybody uh, recovered uh, themselves, uh, they made their way over to the other couple and uh, they said, we noticed you didn't bow to the Pope. And they said, no, we're believers in the Lord Jesus. And uh, we see the Pope as an enemy of, of the gospel. And they said, well, we, we have that same conviction. Uh, they would not bow down. We believers in the Lord Jesus should not fraternize with the enemies of the gospel. Is the Roman Catholic Church an enemy of the cross? Well, must a person be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church to be saved? Must he attend Mass where the, uh, the person of Christ is allegedly uh, crucified, sacrificed each time? Do Roman Catholics vigorously oppose the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith? And we're talking uh, not about the, the Catholic definition of grace as something to receive from the church, but uh, grace, the unmerited favor of God. If these things are true, then the Roman Catholics are the enemies of 
the cross, of the gospel. And we don't honor them. We don't kiss the Pope's ring. We don't bow down to the Pope. We don't call uh, their minister's uh, father or Monsignor. We do not honor them in their position as, uh, as enemies. We're not picking on Roman Catholics this morning. There are other groups uh, to whom, uh, whose representatives we don't bow down to, those who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't uh, wish them success in their endeavors. Uh, if you saw a man pedaling down the street uh, on a bicycle with a rifle across his back saying that he was going to go uh, shoot people, you wouldn't wish him success, you know. Uh, well, have a good day. Nor do we, uh, do we encourage the, assass- the assassins of souls. Um, so um, Mordecai did not bow down to Haman. Haman, understandably, was filled with wrath in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. He was uh, beside himself. Haman was angry. Everyone in this kingdom bows down to me except for Mordecai. But he wouldn't lay hands on Mordecai because somebody told Haman, Mordecai's a Jew. Bing. It seemed to strike a chord in Haman's mind. A Jew. Interesting. Satan may have suggested to Haman, you know, the way to deal with insubordination like this is to just wipe out the, the entire race. Genocide. It seems to be a favorite tactic of Satan to, to wipe out the Jews, wipe out the Messiah. And Haman took it up as, uh, as his plan. The ultimate solution, destroy the Jews. Haman sold his plan to the king. He, um, he told Ahasuerus, you know, there's a people in your kingdom who don't obey your laws. And uh, they, should be, they should be wiped out. Ahasuerus, we have to understand, was um, uh, capricious. He was uh, unstable. And um, I, don't, I can't imagine him buying into this, but uh, Haman was a good salesman. And he said, uh, um, it's something that has to be done. King took off his signet ring. He stamped the decree and uh, they published it throughout the, um, the kingdom. Ahasuerus was at this point walking in the counsel of the ungodly. He was following the foolish counsel of, of uh, Haman. What was the response? Mordecai in chapter 4, uh, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and he wailed, he lamented. This means the destruction of all that we know of um, the Jewish culture in the Persian Empire, which at that point included Palestine, Canaan, the Promised Land. Look at Haman. Look at Mordecai. Who's the victor here? It's too early to tell. We're not done yet. But um, 
Esther was uh, looking out the window and she saw Mordecai with this sackcloth, this um, uh, this terrible uh, dress of mourning on and ashes on his head. And she said, what in the world's going on? What's the worst imaginable thing that you could think of uh, as Esther? Mordecai gave uh, Esther, he sent uh, Esther through uh, Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs. He, he sent her a copy of the decree and told her about the money that Haman planned to, um, to, to gain from the destruction of the Jews. And um, there was only one solution that Mordecai had. There was only one plan. He had no contingencies. In uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he also gave him, that is, Hatak for uh, Esther, a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. There's a back and forth here between Esther and Mordecai through Hatak. And Esther raises an objection in verse 11. She said, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called in, called to go into the king these 30 days. There was a royal protocol. If you were found in the court in the throne room of the king without invitation you were uh, you were to be killed one law we Americans don't appreciate we don't understand royal etiquette here's a true false quiz about uh, Queen Elizabeth II I've not been to England uh, I don't I don't know uh, the protocol but um, this was offered as um, about Queen Elizabeth II. True or false? Do not touch the queen if you visit except to shake her hand and only if she offers it. Good. I'm sorry, Tom and, and Abby. You're going to have to keep your hugs here in the, in the States. We appreciate your, your affection. Where are you, Abby? Okay. Uh, true or false, it's okay to turn your back on the queen if leaving a room before she does. Wow, we're doing a lot better than, uh, than I did. Good. <laughs> You've done well, Don. No, you don't leave a, a, room, a room before the queen does, and you never turn your back on the queen. No. Uh, when the queen finishes her meal, it's time for you to stop eating as well. Okay, you pass the test. That's very good. No, uh, when the queen finishes, you're finished too. There's more. If you're, if you're going to shake hands with the queen, she has a gloved hand, you, and your hand is gloved, you take your, your glove off before shaking hands with the queen. We don't appreciate etiquette like the subjects of a king or queen do. So you may understand why Britons uh, think of most Americans as ignorant and uncouth. 
So, only those to whom the king extends his scepter are allowed to stay in his presence, to live. We have um, here this morning a scepter, uh, much perhaps like uh, Ahasuerus's. It's uh, simple, but understand that Ahasuerus kept his scepter with him to, uh, to extend to, uh, to people who were invited to stay in his presence. Essentially, Esther's reply to Mordecai was, that plan won't work. You want me to go to Ahasuerus and beg, plead for the lives of of our people? Uh, It simply won't work. Mordecai's charge to Esther is is memorable. It's historic. In answer to her objection in verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you're not going to escape. They're going to find out that you're a Jew and they will kill you also. Esther, deliverance will come from another source, another direction. If you remain silent, deliverance will come. What was Mordecai saying in those words? It was a statement of faith. Mordecai believed that the Jews would be delivered from Haman. How? How did he, how did he have that confidence? How did Mordecai know? He had faith in the unfulfilled promises of Jehovah to Israel. He was holding those promises in his heart. He knew that, uh, that Messiah would come. And so he could make that claim to, to Esther. And then finally, uh, in his, uh, his statement to Esther, he asked the question, but it's really a statement. You have come to the kingdom for this reason. The Lord has exalted you to this position for this moment to plead on behalf of Israel. Esther could not argue, but simply asked Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Shushan, bring them all together, and for three days passed. And uh, we read between the lines, pray to the Lord. Night and day, and I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Esther would secure the Lord's favor before seeking favor from the king. And that's why she called for a prayer. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day, after fasting, after praying, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. What were Esther's thoughts as she stood on the threshold of that inner court? 
there was a line that she would cross from safety into danger. What were her thoughts? If I perish, I perish. Consider the question this morning. What is courage? It's not a denial of danger as if closing my eyes makes it go away. The danger is still there. I used to think that fear and courage could exist together. You, you just, uh, you keep going even though, um, your, your mind is telling you to stop. I'm finding out though that real courage displaces fear. Otherwise, the Lord would not have commanded his followers so many times. Fear not. Fear not. The key is focus on the Lord. Being confident that he is alive today, that he is powerful, he is sovereign, he is gracious, he is loving, he is a, a judge of, of the wicked. Superintending every situation. That's courage. We see others who were faced with impossibilities and chose to trust the Lord instead of panicking. Who were some of those people? Well, David before Goliath. Impossible situation. A young lad, 14 years old, against a giant. It was laughable. How could King Saul have allowed this, this boy to, to go up against uh, Goliath and the army of the Philistines? I think the Lord overruled in that case. And uh, David was courageous. No fear. His focus was on the Lord and on his honor. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, had erected, even at the threat of being thrown into the fiery furnace, even held at the door of the fiery furnace being thrown in. They displayed courage and not fear. Daniel, opening his windows and praying to the Lord after reading the decree that you're to pray to King Darius alone for your needs for a month. Each of these people emerged victorious. There was no fear in them, only courage, only confidence and trust in the Lord. We face calamities today, near impossibilities in life, finding work after being laid off in a tough economic environment, fighting cancer other and other life-threatening illnesses, living with a loved one without a loved one uh, whom we've come to depend on for so many things. God uses ordinary people to uh, through these situations to accomplish His will. Four years ago, uh, about this time, we moved our neighbors uh, and it was resting in our living room after moving them as I was thinking, wow, it's so great to have been here at Dayton Avenue for 16 years. The phone rang and the voice at the other end said, you don't know me, but I am your landlady's brother and Mona has passed away. Uh after recovering from the shock of, of that, we didn't even realize she was sick. Uh, he mentioned, and you'll probably be moving. Probably sell the house. 
uh, I was fearful of not finding a new place in time to move out. The landlord set a deadline eventually. You need to move by, by uh, March 31st. And uh, we did find a, a nice house, but um, uh, with only two weeks to make the move. I had 16 years of, of stuff. I don't think uh, Andy and, and John were, were aware of the uh, intense pressure, the fear, the anxiety that I had as, um, as uh, that uh, due date loomed. It was, uh, it was an impossible task. Uh, I was so uh, anxious that at work I would leave my desk and walk out to the parking lot so if uh, when I cracked, uh, other people wouldn't have to uh, pick up the pieces in the office. But the Lord comforted me with this verse. Moses spoke to the panicking nation of Israel at the Red Sea as they saw the dust of the uh, Egyptian army uh, coming toward them. He said, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. I claim that verse as mine. I still struggled with anxiety, but... uh, finally trusted that the Lord knew best and that He would bring this to pass. Through wonderful, gracious, sacrificial effort of the young people who canceled their Friday night and uh, came over and uh, adults with their pickup trucks and trailers, uh, amazingly, uh, we moved. And uh, cleaned the house. Thank you for for cleaning the old house. And uh, it was ready for the landlord on the 31st of March. It seems to be the secret to Esther's courage that she would be confident in the Lord's strength and His sovereignty and His will. So she crossed the threshold. In verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the Lord, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Who put the yes in Ahasuerus' heart? God did. What might Ahasuerus have said? Esther, the ambassador from Egypt is going to be here at 10 o'clock. I've got a lunch appointment with... uh, Mecumen, uh, about uh, our economic state. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get with you today, but uh, soon. Uh, soon we'll get together for your banquet, um, so I'm sorry. And Esther, I'll call you. I'll let you know when, uh, when it's uh, right time for that. Esther had already prepared her banquet in anticipation of Ahasuerus' yes. 
where would Ahasuerus' no have left her? She would have had no appeal to then intrude into the, pal- the court again after being told no would have been uh, certain, uh, certainly against the king's wishes. Artists have depicted this dramatic scene in Scripture and uh, amid the, the crowded court, here is, um, is Ahasuerus not sitting stiffly in his, uh, in his throne, but they show him with his, with his flowing robe, stretched out to Esther to reach her because he loved her. He extended that favor, that, uh, that grace to Esther. We know of, um, of Ahasuerus' eagerness to, um, to grant her request in verse 3. He said, um, Esther, what is it? It'll be given to you to half the kingdom. The kingdom was behind him. Esther was before him. And he extended his love to her. Oh, that the kings in our assembly would be so tender and generous with their queens as Esther showed him, as Ahasuerus showed himself with Esther. At the banquet that they attended in uh, verses 6 through 8, Ahasuerus is enjoying the banquet. He says, Esther, what's your request? I, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And uh, she told the king, if it, uh, if it pleases you, come to the banquet that I have for you tomorrow. Why hadn't Esther fallen down before him in the throne room and weeping pled for her people? Because Ahasuerus wasn't ready. She was preparing the heart of the king. She was a wise woman who understood the times. And uh, think about Ahasuerus. Uh, Esther has invited me to a banquet and she's invited me to another banquet and I've offered up to half my kingdom and she's not accepted it. She is asking for something really big. Esther knew that this was the best way for the king to fully focus on this problem and not on the other matters of state. We have a huge problem that needs to be uh, addressed. Haman was, uh, was very pleased with, um, with being an invited guest to the banquet. And uh, he was joyful and glad in heart until he got to the king's gate and he saw Mordecai standing there and all that joy and, and, uh, and gladness went away. He said, told his wife, uh, I can't stand it when, um, when uh, Mordecai does not bow to me. His wife's counsel, Zeresh, Zeresh. In verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14, uh, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. The thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Zeresh couldn't wait for the execution order to take effect. Mordecai had only nine months to live. But uh, why wait? Why not build uh, gallows and, and hang him on it? 
Why 50 cubits high? Interesting, Ziresh. Why 50 cubits? Uh, buildings in Shushan, even though it was the, the capital of this massive empire, probably didn't go up seven stories high, which a 50 cubit uh, gallows would have. A gallows that high would have stood out above the trees of the city. And so anyone hanged on it would have been the ridicule of the entire citadel. They would, they would see uh, to the shame of him hanged on it. It's uh, reminiscent of another king's wife who gave counsel to her husband, Jezebel, <clears throat> when uh, Ahab was so sullen he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard. She, uh, she arranged for Naboth's murder. And we see it in Zeresh. That night, the king could not sleep. So he commanded the book of the records to be brought out. And uh, they read through and they read the account of Mordecai um, spoiling this, this assassination attempt. And he said, what has been done for Mordecai? Well, <clears throat> nothing had been done. So uh, he said, who's, uh, who's in the outer court? And they said, well, Haman is here. Haman, having built the gallows, now he's ready to, uh, to propose to the king as he'd proposed the destruction of the Jews. Let's hang uh, Mordecai. The king asked innocently, and Haman answered egotistically, what should I do for the man in whom the king delights? Well, that's simple. Uh, who would the king like to honor more than me? Uh, why not uh, put him in, in royal apparel and put him on a horse uh, who the king has ridden and parade him through the town square, the city square? Make it so, Haman. Take uh, Mordecai and take him through the city. Haman uh, had nothing but to obey the king. Imagine Mordecai's surprise. Here was the man dedicated to his his death and the slaughter of his people, guiding the horse through the town square, crying, Thus shall the king do to the man whom he delights to honor. <laughs> Mordecai looking down from the horse going, Wow, what a, what a change from sackcloth to, to royal clothes and honor. Haman hurried home and he told his, uh, his wife and friends what happened. And uh, the wife's counsel like that of uh, Job's wife um, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. You will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Not encouraging to her husband. So they, they hurry Haman off to the banquet, to the second banquet of uh, Queen Esther. And the king asks her a third time, Esther, what is your petition? It will be granted to you up to half my kingdom. In chapter 7, verse 3, Queen Esther answered and said, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Ahasuerus exploded 
Who? Who is the one who has ordered this, this annihilation? And she pointed to Haman. It's that man. Wicked Haman. The king, beside himself, left to the palace garden. When he returned, he found Haman uh, pleading with the, uh, with the queen, assaulting her, in effect, uh, pleading for his life. The king ordered uh, Haman's face covered. It's a, a judgment, I believe, against Haman that uh, uh, he would leave the king with his, his face covered. Harbona. There's always a Harbona in the group, one of the eunuchs. Look, there's a gallows, 50 cubits high in Haman's yard. Hang him. <laughs> the king said, make it so. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. The wicked plot returned on Haman's own head. We have the removal of Haman from the from the picture, but the problem, the decree to annihilate the Jews remained. Haman being dead does not free the Jews. Esther is now free to unburden her heart, and in uh, chapter 8, verses 3 through 6, she fell down at his feet and implored him with tears, help my people, deliver us from this scheme which Haman has devised against the Jews. Ahasuerus knew the decree could not be revoked, so um, they wrote a second decree that the Jews be allowed to gather for protection. And um, Mordecai was placed in a position of honor. He was feared by the, by the people, and the fear of the Jews fell upon the empire. On that day that the Jews were to have been executed, we read in chapter 9, verse 1, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. The opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. In verse 3 of chapter 9, we read that actually the officials of the provinces helped the Jews in their, uh, in their defense. And there was a great slaughter of the enemies of the Jews in uh, verse 5. The Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with, a slaughter, with slaughter and destruction. It's like the Lord to take evil and to fashion good out of it. That was the statement that uh, Joseph made to his brothers. You've intended this for evil, but the Lord made it for good. On the anvil of the Lord's sovereignty, he pounds out the, the blasphemy of men into his praise and honor. And he did so with, uh, with the scheme of Haman. Mordecai instituted a day of feasting and gladness named uh, the Feast of Purim after the uh, lot that was cast uh, by Haman. It is celebrated even to this day, the 14th, day of the month of Adar falls on February 28th, 2010, and there will be celebration 2,500 years after uh, Mordecai's institution of this 
celebration of the victory of the Jews. Application that we can make from the life of Esther and Mordecai, the Lord uses ordinary people today in unsurmountable situations before unsurmountable odds to accomplish his sovereign will. Uses ordinary people, you and me. Take courage. Be confident, believer. The Lord is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is wise. He is loving. We Americans lack familiarity with etiquette for earthly kings and queens, and yet each of us has met or will meet the greatest king. This king extends his scepter to every sinner, every sinner on the planet. And he says, you found grace and favor in my sight. Take eternal life. I offer it to you, half my kingdom. Will you accept it? Many of us here have have touched the tip of that scepter. We've said, yes, king, I will accept your offer. He seems to phrase it this way, if I could um, personalize it for the Lord Jesus. As many as receive me, to them I give the right to become children of God to those who believe in my name. That is a king's offer. Have you accepted it? Or can you turn your back on the king of glory, on the, uh, the sovereign of the universe, the Father of eternity, can you turn your back on Him? Amazingly, we can. In this lifetime, we can uh, reject His offer. We can say, no, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to receive your life. In a future day, if you reject the offer of this King, you will meet Him. Scepter in hand. Not extended in favor and grace, but as a symbol of his authority in judgment over your soul. The parable is, is told of the, the man who came into the wedding feast without a wedding garment. And the, the master of the feast said, how did you get in here? And he commanded him to be cast out into outer darkness. Choose the Lord Jesus. Bow down to him today. Accept his offer for eternal life. Let's pray. We come before you, O King, King of glory, the one who created us and yet the one who suffered on Calvary's cross that we might know you and that we might have eternal life. We want to take courage in the days ahead, struggles that we will have as believers, and uh, pray for those who do not yet know you, have not yet accepted your invitation, that they would do so today. Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.